0: I'm not sure if you're in a timeless space right now, but uh, as a reminder, we're about midpoint in the retreat, right dead in the center, which means the first half is behind us, and we're moving into uh, the last half. (laughs) So, be comforted. You know, we've spoken a lot uh, about effort and and uh, how important that is. And clearly the retreat is, uh, um, you know, hopefully uh, everybody here, the teachers, uh, staff, uh, yogis, practitioners, all of us, um, you know, are creating together a a supportive environment for effort. And I think that when I look around at the room, I'm really beginning to feel the fruits. You know, I'm not sure uh, what it feels like inside, I know that sometimes inside and outside are quite different. Um, yet at the same time, there's, there's definitely a growing silence. You, know, you can feel the, the uh, concentration, uh, the continuity of mindfulness building. And tonight I have, a, I have a rather long talk, so it's two parts. You get the first part uh, tonight. And I'd like to talk about the work that we're doing here and... Uh, clearly it is, uh, without a doubt, work. It takes a lot of effort. And I think one of the things that we're doing, what we're trying to nurture, what we're trying to learn, is how to trust the intelligence of awareness. You know, it's really a hard thing to do. You know, to trust kind of the unknown. You know, to trust some silence that we might sense is down there somewhere. Some power. But that power is really difficult to tap into. You know, it, takes, you know, it takes a real focus of attention. It takes a certain amount. Larry was just mentioning in the previous sitting. A certain kind of surrender. You know, a willingness to actually be there. To show up. To be with the discomfort. And certainly it means being with thinking. We describe... Uh, this place as a retreat center. And I I think many ways a retreat is really a misnomer. When you come here, and probably you've noticed over the last few days, it may not feel like a retreat. Um, The fact is we really bring a lot with us. And the fact is that we bring our thinking minds with us. We bring the past. All the things that have happened to us in the past all the things that we think are awaiting us in the future. And we bring that all to this setting. Now there's a great power in thinking, and I'm going to talk some about that tonight. But there's also a great limitation in thinking. One of the things that we find out in the, the shamatha practice, the, the, the sort of the focused mindfulness practice, when our goal is kind of clear, our goal is kind of, can we stay with the breath? Or can we find it? Can we stay there? And, you know, what's that like, training the mind over and over again to stay there? And one of the things we discover is that, of course, there's an enormous amount of thinking going on. And that that thinking creates separation from the breathing. Yeah. We're breathing, and yet at the same time, we're not fully present for it. Thinking keeps pulling us away. Our thinking is in the background. And so we don't really fully relax. We don't really fully settle into the breath. I'm sure we've all seen by now, too, that how thinking separates us from the activities of the day. You know, when we're eating, are we actually present eating? Sometimes. But a lot of times we're thinking. You know, we might be thinking about the walk after lunch, or maybe taking a bit of a rest after lunch. We're thinking about going home, or're thinking about uh, restaurants that we're going to be eating at in the future. Uh, maybe we're planning to, to have a fish dinner as soon as we leave. Um, but we're thinking about other things, and it's that thinking that really separates us. It keeps us uh, out of the present moment. It really disconnects us from the process of eating, and in some ways really interferes with our pleasure. It really interferes with our enjoyment. Thinking also separates us from each other. I'm not so sure if you can uh, see that on retreat so much because so much of your time, of course, is in some ways alone, even though you're in relationship and, and all of us are here practicing together. But certainly we can see that in our relationships in our daily lives. And a good example of this is when we find ourselves in conversation in communication with others, just how difficult it is to actually listen with silence. You know, listen without commenting. You know, listen without interpreting. Listening without thinking about what you're going to say next. The silence. It's hard, it's hard to just be there, present, because of our thinking minds. You know, they're going on all the time. Thinking also separates us from ourselves. I think that now that we're doing uh, a vipassana practice, a much more open practice, you know, where, we're, where, where the job now is to pay attention to yourself, you know, to pay attention to all the movements and changes that makes this self, you know, this process of movement, the constant changing of attitudes and moods and sensations. And now our job is to pay attention to that. But once again, thought gets in the way. The thinking mind gets in the way becomes an obstacle to paying attention, to being present. Sometimes I I really sit or stand in awe at the power of thinking. It's really quite an enormous force, and it's quite an enormous intelligence that we've trained, that we've unleashed. In some ways I feel like it's unleashing it. If you look at the world, if you look at uh, the technological advances, you know where that's all coming out of thinking. I mean, if you look at a computer and you look at just the how advanced technology is getting, the, the increased power of communication, where we can talk to anybody within seconds, you know, I mean, it's it's quite extraordinarily how how much we've empowered ourselves in that area. You know, so much more efficient. Looking at the medical advances, I don't know if if everybody uh, reads newspapers. I do. And uh, one of the big uh, stories these days is, is that they recently uh, quote made a, a great advance in science uh, where, where they successfully, I guess successfully, cloned a sheep. Okay, they cloned a sheep. Uh, they created a matching sheep. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> And, you know, there's, there's a lot of debate about the ethics of that. I think that's a good idea. A really good idea. Um, I think, I think uh, we need to start thinking, like, why are we doing these things? Uh, and uh, that's something we really don't ask, because our thinking often is not influenced by wisdom, clearly. Uh, of course, I'm very suspicious of this cloning process. Uh, it makes me nervous. I've seen them... <laughs> I see what they do with nuclear power and uh, what's cloning going to turn into, uh, what's cloning going to turn into. And personally, I mean, when I start thinking about cloning, cloning people, uh, I, think, I imagine a cloned Michael Liebenson Grady. And I think one is enough, <laughs> that, that's what I've said a little. One is really a big job, takes all my effort and time. Another one, definitely not. So thinking clearly is a form of intelligence. And, and, you know, it's a form of intelligence that obviously we've spent an enormous amount of energy developing. And it's very, very useful. Clearly useful for functioning, for survival, for uh, achieving certain kinds of happiness. We need to think. You know, I mean, if you look at um, some of the things that you may have uh, developed or accumulated over your life, uh, home, family, friends, comfortable car, reliable car, all sorts of good things come out of this kind of uh, ability to think. You know, uh, it really does help us in many, many different ways. But I think a lot of us are here because we realize that, you know, that, that, that there are many different kinds of happiness in this world. And uh, many of us have experienced different kinds of happiness at different points. Certainly we've had our share of unhappiness, but I'm sure there have been plenty of times of happiness. And yet at the same time we're looking for something different. We're looking for something uh, that's more lasting, you know, something that isn't so conditional, <coughs> something that doesn't depend, a kind of happiness that doesn't depend on others. You know, think about that power of really relying on oneself for one source of happiness. And of course, is a very, very uh, different message than mostly we've gotten in our lives. And it's, it's really up to us to see, if, to see if we can trust that. Can we trust awareness? Can we trust this different kind of intelligence, this different kind of intelligence that leads to peace, lasting peace? You might say, like, what's wrong with kind of thinking, analyzing, problem-solving, fixing figuring out, interpreting, fantasizing, strategizing our way to happiness. What's wrong with all of the above? What's wrong with this kind of thinking, analyzing, figuring, trying to get somewhere, <coughs> way to get to happiness? First thing that comes to my mind is that it doesn't seem to have worked. You know, Larry mentioned that in the sitting. Has our thinking brought us to this place of comfort, Has our thinking led us to a place of a greater sense of completion? A place where we can rest. A place where we can surrender and just be ourselves? I'm not sure. I don't think so. And how come? How come we can't think our way to happiness? Because clearly that's what a lot of what we're doing. I mean, I think it's a common bond that really. Not only people in this room share, but people all over the world share. Which is this sense, this seeking of happiness, this quest for happiness. And you know, we think and we act, really, in pursuit of that. We think and then we act. Looking for this kind of happiness. So why can't we get there? Largely we can't get there. We can't find this kind of new power, this kind of new intelligence because our thinking is so conditioned by our past. That's the problem with it. It's conditioned by the past. And that, really, that conditioning really prevents us from discovering something new. It, it really becomes a limitation. It becomes a, a burden when we rely exclusively on thinking to find happiness. And what conditions are our thinking? You know, what's the past? What does our past look like? What are the uh, the kinds of uh, processes our mind has been subjected to over our life? Certainly, uh, the world of knowledge is something that uh, all of us have uh, been immersed in at one time or another, and we look at our educational system, for instance, and that that intense socialization process that all of us have have gone through through schooling and, and really uh, many of us are really are clearly overeducated uh, we're over socialized and uh, we've come to rely on, on that kind of knowledge you know? I mean right you know oftentimes you read uh, at one time a high school education was considered sort of acceptable you could make a decent living a lot of our parents went to high school and uh, after a while college You know, B.A. doesn't look so good anymore. Then you need to move up to the masters or the Ph.D.s, and it's sort of this endless, you know, quest for knowledge. And even Dharma books, you know, even even kind of all the the tremendous industry that has been created in this in this culture, Uh, the Dharma tapes, the books, uh, the the audio tapes. uh, You know, there's there's a tremendous amount of Dharma coming out, and uh, and it's Clearly, it's valuable. It's not to, to uh, dismiss it. But you can see when we rely, you know, and sometimes I think when we look at our own practice, a lot of times we rely on reading. We rely on the kind of inspiration that we get from books, but sometimes we skip out on the actual practice itself. And I think that's something that we deal with a lot. At CIMC, when, when we work with people who are very busy, um, oftentimes they come in reporting what they've read <laughs> and uh, we always say, "Well, how much have you been sitting?" Uh, because it, it, clearly, it, it, it's the sitting that matters. It's one's own experience. Because the the, uh, the drawback to relying on, on dharma books and tapes and teachers and all that is is that oftentimes it's secondhand knowledge that you're that you're, that, you're, that you're getting. That that it's 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 somebody else's experience. And, uh, you know, relying on somebody else's experience is really not going to bring us peace. And occasionally it can be helpful, but we're certainly not going to find that really deep form of rest or intelligence in ourselves through some, somebody else's experience. We're going to have to taste it ourselves. And certainly the Buddha uh, spoke uh, quite profoundly about that. When uh, uh, Many of you, of course, in this, in this room, uh, many of you... Um, Older students know, I'm sure you've heard it many times, uh, talked about the, the Kalama Sutta. It's a famous discourse that, that the Buddha taught. And uh, the main point was basically warning, warning people to, to not rely on uh, books, don't rely on tradition, you know, don't rely on really any authority other than your own experience. And I remember the first time I heard that discourse. Uh, I really knew that this was my practice. You know, I really knew that this was my practice. Um, because when I came into practice, I really, in some ways, uh, I came in at a really uh, a good time because I was really ready to let go of kind of thinking. You know, I, mean, I think I'd spent an enormous amount of time in my life thinking before practice and really had decided that, that uh, quite clearly it was leading uh, to this kind of endless cycle of uh, discontent. And uh, nothing was really changing. Things seemed to be getting even more solid in a way. That thinking wasn't really um, presenting me with the way out. And I remember when I first um, sat down and really got some formal teachings was I was in Boulder in 1974 and I walked in uh, to a class that was in progress, a Joseph Goldstein class. All of you I'm sure know Joseph. And uh, I remember sitting down and listening to him, and then doing the practice. And, and to me, it was just a tremendous relief. It was just a tremendous relief to, to try something different. You know, instead of trying to figure things out, instead of trying to get rid of, to make an effort to just be with the experience the way it was, and to attend to it. You know, I mean it was such a radical, such a different kind of thing to do. And you know, from that point on, I really decided that I was going to really give it a try, and it certainly t- has taken an enormous amount of effort uh, over the years. Um, but it has been extremely fruitful effort. And it really, it really is. Um, we really have that capacity to really approach our lives in a fundamentally different way. another limitation with thought, another aspect of thought, why, why, we, why, it's, why it really doesn't get us to where we want it to go, is a lot of our thinking comes out of memory. You know, a lot of our thinking is conditioned by a memory. You know, we've, all of us have accumulated thousands and thousands and thousands of experiences. Uh, and these experiences leave impressions. They leave psychic impressions. They leave impressions on the body. You know, we hold. And I think some of us are getting in touch sometimes with the tension and the deep levels of tension. And really those are just impressions. Those are impressions from past experiences and from how we've <coughs> reacted to those experiences quite often. That's the source. When we function through memory, you know, when we use memory as a reference point, you know, when memory filters out all the new information It's out there. When memory filters, you're doing your job. When memory filters, you're sitting there, trying to be present, and then you start tripping off into the past. When memory does that, I just actually lost my memory. I realized where I was going, I lost it. Um, When we interpret experience through memory, it's from the old. It's from the past. A good example of this. Is, this, is the memory of self-image. You know, self-image is a construction that all of us are quite actively engaged in a lot of the time. Uh, it's a legacy of the past. You know, it comes from the past, This self-image. And it's a reference point. It's how we refer a lot of experiences back to the self-image. And of course there are different kinds of images. Uh, certainly one is one that we're probably more familiar with is, is the, the negative image, right? The, the different periods, the different uh, feelings of worthlessness, uh, uh, the hindrances, you know, with negative uh, uh, self-image. It, of course, extremely painful, and, and one of the reasons why it's so painful is that the, the two hindrances that really come up with a negative self-image is aversion, right? Really a tremendous amount of judgment, tremendous amount of self-judgment. And also self-doubt. You know, self-doubt is also another reinforcer of the self-image. It comes out of the self-image many times. When things don't go our way, when we, when we encounter difficulties, we run into memory, we run into self-image. And then we start dealing with it from that place. It's very painful. I mean, negative self-image can be in- incredibly incapacitating. And I think one of the things that happens when we, when we touch that place in ourselves that sense of not being worthy or up to the task. <laughs> Quite often we fantasize about having a positive image, positive self-image. I'd like to spend a couple of, word, couple of minutes talking about positive self-image because uh, I guess my sense of it is that's not necessarily the way to go either. I don't know if you've encountered too many people with a very overt uh, positive self-image, but... but my experience is that generally they can be very tiring to be around. I don't, I don't know if you've experienced that. But people have this like really tremendous sense of their, their own worth. Um, and uh, I'm not talking about self-acceptance. I'll, I'll say something about that in a minute. But uh, uh, the self-worth that's been uh, developed, cultivated, um, partly by uh, other people convincing them. I, mean, I think there's a... A lot of that that goes on in this culture. People are convincing some people that they are really quite wonderful, uh, and then sometimes it's convincing themselves. They spend an enormous amount of time, quite often, you know, feeding that and reinforcing that. And my point is, is not to put down these folks, and and I think that even all of us probably have a little strain of that in us in us too. But it's to point out really that there's a lot of suffering sometimes in people, even people with a tremendous amount of self-esteem. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of suffering in that. Because a lot of what, what happens is that uh, there's a lot of interpretation going on. There's a, lot of, there's a tremendous investment interpreting things a certain way. Quite often interpreting them in a positive way. In a way that puts a positive spin in what they do. Oftentimes our leaders really... Uh, reflect that. Leaders, sometimes celebrities, people who have really been given a lot of fame and power often have that kind of positive image. To me, it's very, very different. It's a different kind of intelligence. It's much more limited. The kind of positive self-image I'm talking about. Because the (coughs) self-acceptance to me is so much deeper. The self-acceptance that comes out of mindfulness. Really looking at oneself and bringing that quality of acceptance, you know, finding that quality of acceptance within oneself by working with the challenges one faces, you know, by working with all the judgments, by working with all the self-doubt, by bringing meta, cultivating thoughts of loving kindness to balance the self-doubt. To me, that's really earned, and it really doesn't have much to do with self-image. Self-acceptance really doesn't have much to do with self-image. A lot of our self-image has really not much to do with self-acceptance. It's really about what Larry has talked about a few times. It's about becoming. You know, it's about becoming somebody else, maintaining some personality, some, some personality structure, some image to other people. Another way our thinking mind is limited is, is certainly by and I'm sure all of us know this, the, the force of fear. Fear. It's a, it's a big one. I already mentioned once that I recently returned from Asia, and um, one of the, I think, prominent themes of, that, of this particular trip um, was fear, was my encountering different kinds of fear, whether it was the on the taxi ride and uh, coming from the airport in Bangkok, and and somebody trying to go like 90 miles an hour in a in a heavy traffic jam, um, I never really encountered driving like that before. Uh, it was it was incredible. I mean, it was just tremendously terrifying. Um, but um, I also got an opportunity. I had an opportunity to spend a few weeks at uh, Ajahn Mahabuas uh, teacher of Larry, teacher of mine. I spent a few weeks at his forest monastery. I, I'm sure. Uh, some of you are really familiar with the Thai forest tradition, others uh, may be very new, uh, uh, new information. Uh, certainly a lot of the teachings that you hear come out of the Thai forest tradition. Uh, certainly their emphasis on simplicity uh, is a big part of the Thai forest tradition. And Mahabhu is one of the last living masters, if not the last, of that particular tradition. And his uh, Wat, his monastery, has has become extremely popular because of that. A lot of people come and give, uh, Donna, give uh, offerings to him because he, because people know, you know, Thailand is changing rapidly, westernizing, and when Mahabu goes, there's really no replacement. And so, so there's a, there, it was really a, an important time for us to go there because we really knew this would be the the last time we would ever have a chance to make contact and. And so we went there and we were fortunate enough to, to be given a, a kuti, which is like a little uh, one-room kind of cottage or hut. And uh, we, uh, myself and Narayan, we, we started sitting and walking and doing, and doing the practice. And it was my first experience with a real kind of the kind of forest tradition. You know, I mean, certainly out here we're in a, a forest, but we're also extremely protected. Um, and in the forest tradition, they really do have this. Uh, this theme that runs through the tradition which is working with fear, and uh, when you start spending time in the forest, you really understand uh, why it's such a prominent theme because that's really the first thing that comes up uh, is when the sun desc- you know when the sun sets, you know the fear really rises uh, and uh, there are many stories there are many stories about uh, Mahabu of course and and having met him uh, i, I I really wasn't sure to believe the stories. And then when I met him, I, I actually did believe them because he was so, so extraordinary, so calm. Um, but there were many stories of him doing walking meditation. And, of course, this was a number of years ago. And, and at that time, there still were tigers in the forest. Uh, and, of course, he would he didn't really oftentimes even have a kuti, mind you. He would just sleep out there. Uh, and uh, there famous practice is really walking at night, spending a lot of time walking at night and using candles at one end of the path and candles at the other end of the path. And there are many stories about him walking, doing walking meditation, you know, mindfully walking. And at one point he turned around and there was this tiger uh, right in the path. I mean, a huge tiger uh, looking at him. And uh, he just stopped and he looked back. And he sent Metta, he was quiet, he was silent, and the tiger went away. And when I was doing walking meditation out there, <laughs> a very, very different experience, <laughs> I can tell you that. Uh, there were no tigers, there were like wild chickens, and, uh, which, believe it or not, the roosters scared me. Uh, they're so aggressive. <laughs> they really are. They're very, they're really hostile little creatures. <laughs> uh, and when I was uh, sitting in my kuti, it was the rats. I had a, I had a couple of uh, like field rats, really. They, they're not really that kind of urban city uh, version. <laughs> um, they're much more, I think, uh, benign than that. Uh, but still, it's kind of disturbing. Uh, you know, you're sit- walking on the deck or sitting on this little, walking on the o- outside in this little porch, and uh, the rats run by uh, with your eyes closed. And every night around 6 o'clock, uh, this one little rat would come out and run. Every day he came running closer and closer uh, to where I was sitting. Um, and, uh, you know, it took quite a while before I could begin to even... Relax. I mean, I was just really getting in a state, and quite often at night I'd be sitting on the porch and and you know just hearing a little scratching sound. What, God knows what it was. A whatever it was, but you know I would just watch my body just stiffen up, you know, just stiffen up, or I would watch like the tension in my stomach, you know, just kind of what is it? You know, what's going to happen? Uh, and and you know I, obviously I was uh, quite I was protected. You know, there was nothing it was going to happen to me, but uh, it certainly didn't prevent the fear from coming out. In one of the practices, I work with a fellow named Tanpanya, who, who is a monk of some 30 or 40 years, and he, he's really, uh, Ajahn Mahabhu is uh, uh, probably his, his head student or whatever. He's worked with him for a long, long time, and I, I spent quite a bit of time talking to him, and, and he really educated me uh, in a really profound way on on the forest tradition, he really he, uh, because with Mahabu, it was very difficult to have any contact. Uh, he's 83 years old and he, he really doesn't even hardly teach the monks anymore. But Tanpan you really uh, spent, we spent a lot of time of course talking about fear. Uh, it was like my favorite topic. I would come and I'd say, well what do you do when this happens? Uh, and he'd say, make a suggestion. And one of the things they suggested doing was uh, uh, focusing attention on the body, you know, to really begin to work with fear, not so much in a thought level. You know, not so much like getting content, or why am I feeling afraid, or I shouldn't feel afraid. It's only a rat. None of that stuff. Go right to your body, and really investigate it. Bring some mindfulness to the body. It was a powerful practice. I mean, it was quite extraordinary that working with fear on that level, you know, working through my body. As the days unfolded, I really felt a change. You know, I really felt like just kind of a softening around the fear. You know, just more of a sense of being able to just be with that particular thought construction, that particular kind of reaction. But I definitely saw how it affected me and how much it affected my thinking and how I would interpret those sounds (coughs) coming from a place of fear, you know, coming from a place of imagination. Another thought form, another uh, remembering that Larry was talking about the third foundation: uh, mental formations. And I, I find that an interesting one: mental formations, because uh, fantasy, the world of fantasy, uh, is certainly a mental formation. We've all taken a look at that on retreat here. Uh, and uh, looking at the different ways we use fantasy. I'm sure many of you, many of you are getting in touch with the fact that quite often we fantasize because we don't like what's happening. And so we go off into that world of fantasy. Tremendous power. Tremendous power resides in fantasy. It's a big hook. I debated about whether to tell that story, uh, this story, because this is another kind of, uh, it's kind of turning into a confessional in a way. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it's similar to the bench story, and, and the intention is, is not so much to confess because it, it worked out fine, uh, but it's, it, the intention really is to try to save you a bit of time here because you, you don't have to do what I did. Uh, you really don't. Um, one day I was in a self-retreat, and uh, the self-retreat I here, actually here at IMS, and I spend, uh, oftentimes I spend uh, four or five weeks at, at IMS in the spring, sometimes uh, sitting, doing kind of a self-sitting walking on my own, And uh, one day I had this very bright idea. I said, well, you know, I I talk about all this stuff all the time, about fantasy and what a waste of time it is, Uh, you know, kind of how it doesn't really go anywhere uh, in all this, but but I'm going to try something new. And uh, what I'm going to try today, I woke up in the morning, I said, I'm going to try this, that every time a hindrance arises, every time, for instance, I get sleepy, a little bit restless, um, you know, whatever the hindrance might be, a little bit of resistance to what's happening, I was going to generate a fantasy and see what would happen. See, see, you know, what, what's, what's, what's going to happen to this particular hindrance? What's going to happen to my mind? And so every time I'd get sleepy, I'd start, mm, okay, there's the sleepiness. Let's fantasize. Let's see what happens. And so I would go to the Caribbean. I would visit a, a friend in Italy and, and have a really good time in Venice. Uh, I would do all sorts of things. Have nice dinners with friends, and I would generate whatever whatever the current fantasy was. And at the beginning, what I noticed was that there's some energy came out of that. You know, there was some energy in the fantasy, and you know, I started saying, whoa, wait a second here. You know, maybe this is a way of working with sleepiness. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just fantasize, get some energy." And so I went after that. You know, I just start, kept doing. Every time I got sleepy, okay, fantasy, fantasy. I gave up by the end of the afternoon. I couldn't do a full day of it because it was so exhausting. (laughs) It was just so tiring and so futile. And uh, I think that uh, the thing that I really got from that, that whole notion of fantasy, was just a sense of how it reinforces the sense of incompletion, the sense of incompleteness in us. That in the moment it feels pleasant. But what's the effect of indulging in fantasy? You know, What's the effect of feeding it, going into it, reinforcing it? A lot of it does is it just reinforces that sense of incompletion, that sense of need, that insecurity, that lack of peace. <coughs> Someone once said that Uh, fantasy or imagination makes a wonderful servant but a poor master. I think that's really true. That imagination and creativity is a wonderful tool that we have, wonderful power of imagination, of thinking. But if it rules us, if it it hooks us in and takes us away from what's happening now, from finding a deeper peace, then it becomes a poor master. And finally, one more uh, thought form, which is uh, kind of our attachment to views and opinions, because that's another place where our thinking often comes from. Being right. Being right. How invested are we in being right? Think about that, how much that affects you know, our communication, how much that affects our particular approach to life, the way we project ourselves to other people. So much attachment to our views and opinions. And a good question to ask, we oftentimes it's a pretty easy one to answer. A good question to ask is, is, does that attachment to views and opinions lead to connection, or does it lead to more separation or disconnection? And I don't think I've ever seen an example where the attachment to the view and the opinion really led to greater connection. I mean, have you ever been um, someone or been someone who's really strongly attached to their view, their opinion as being right? Doesn't mean that you can't think you're right or have a view or have your opinion. But when you're really attached to it and you know you're right and you know that other person is wrong, it really creates a lot of separation It creates a lot of conflict. And a lot of our thinking revolves around proving that point, that we're right. And so that's the thinking mind, some of the thinking mind, anyway. And like I mentioned earlier, and Larry Larry talked about the four foundations of mindfulness. First foundation being body, the second feeling, the third mental formation. Fourth is the dharma. And... It's really important, I think, that um, as much as we might recognize the limitation of thought, you know, seeing it perhaps as a source of discontent quite often, um, it's really, really important not to judge it, not to create an enemy out of thought, but rather to see it as another foundation. You know, it's just like the body. It's just like feelings. It really just, it needs to be investigated, though. It needs to be investigated. Getting lost in thought is very, very, very different than being mindful of thought. And the longer you practice, the clearer that becomes. Sometimes there's a lot of confusion in that process. You know, what's the difference between being mindful of thinking and just being lost, caught up in thinking, being interested by what's, what you're thinking about. One signal is, uh, mindfulness of thinking tends to point out a fact about the thinking itself. When When we're mindful of thinking, what we begin to notice is the process nature of the thought. In other words, we begin to see thinking as a process. When we're lost in thought, we're lost in the content. We're in there. We're identified. It's real. When we're mindful of thinking, we see it as an arising and passing away of experience. Quite often, arising and passing away of an experience that we're not in control of. And seeing that, seeing the impermanent nature of thought, allows us to settle down more. We get less agitated, more equanimous with our thoughts. And then we begin to sense a silence that's underneath the thinking. A silence that really rests at a much deeper level than the thinking. The thinking is occurring, but it's occurring in a particular field, and the field is awareness. And that's the place we're going to find rest. We're not going to find rest in thinking activity. We're going to find it below there, someplace much more expansive some place much more deeper, some place that's much more inclusive. You know, our thinking is really based on separating and making distinctions. And a lot of times we need to make those distinctions in our life. But awareness underneath it doesn't make distinctions. It accepts everything. And so so I'd like to spend more time talking about that particular kind of intelligence, the intelligence of awareness, uh, in the next talk. So let's let's sit for a, a minute or two.